0: It is great to be back uh, at Grace Assembly of God. Um, it was 1997 that our family moved uh, to Buffalo, New York, when I was 14 years old, uh, and uh, and so it's been 19 years uh, now. And uh, it's just so great to be back. Uh, all the places we've been, all the churches we've attended, all the ministries we've been a part of, Grace Assembly of God, I still consider my home church. And uh, I'm just so grateful for this church and for uh, all of the families and all the individuals who have invested in my life. I think I could talk forever about um, all the great memories I have and uh, all the wonderful things. Maybe I'll do that sometime and take up a half an hour, but I think of, just off the top of my head, I think of uh, uh, Bill Senegal and Manny Oliveri's Sunday school class where we built model airplanes and papier-mâché maps of Paul's missionary journeys, and I I think of uh, all the memories with Bible Quiz and and Royal Rangers and just so many great times at this church, and I'm just so grateful for this church. I want to say thank you. Um, My wife and I are here. Uh, We've just moved to Syracuse in the last few months. Uh, We were in Niagara Falls for the last five years where I served as the executive pastor there, and then eight years prior to that, we served at a church in Connecticut as youth and children's pastors, and uh, I had the opportunity now to work at our network office uh, with Dr. Durst, and uh, just so grateful to be back in Syracuse. It feels like home already. And uh, uh, we have come back to Syracuse with our six children. Uh, and, yep, they are here. Uh, my oldest son, Amos, is right here in the front. This is Amos. He's 10 years old, and my wife, Hallie. Uh, we ha- so we have uh, four boys and two girls, ages 10, 9, 6, 4, 2, and 1, and uh, some of you drove into church today wondering if you got a new church van. That's not true. <laughs> That's just our family vehicle. <laughs> so, uh, but we're grateful to be with you uh, this morning and uh, grateful to share the word with you. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Have you, have you ever stopped to reflect on your life for a moment and ask yourself, why am I not as happy as I want to be? Anybody been there? I don't know. I know some of you are perfectly content and perfectly happy all the time, and you never have any problems, so maybe I don't need to talk to you today. But I, sometimes there's moments in my life where, where I say, I, I just am not, I'm not happy. I'm not content. I, I want more out of life, and I'm frustrated with what I'm getting out of life right now. And when I step back to examine it, I often find that I have no good reason to not be content. I have no good reason to not be happy. And if I do have a reason, if I can pinpoint the reason or the cause of my discontent at a particular moment, it's usually so trivial and so insignificant that I get frustrated that that's even making me mad. But the truth is, is that we all have an ideal picture of what we want our lives to look like. And when I step back and I look at my life, I realize that I have in my mind an ideal picture of what I hope my life is going to look like. And discontentment arises in my heart when I compare the reality of my life to the ideal picture of what I want my life to look like. Now, contentment's been a, a, an issue that uh, humanity struggled with for a long time. Uh, King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 6.6, 6, 6, he says this. He says, a man might live 1,000 years twice over... That's 2,000 years for those of you doing the math. Uh, he might live 1,000 years twice over but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? That is a really encouraging scripture verse, huh? <laughs> Let's pray and then we'll dismiss. No not going to leave you with that. But if you know anything about Solomon, what's amazing about Solomon at this point in time in human history, there is not a single person on the planet who has more wealth, more women, or more wisdom than Solomon does. And yet he says, you can live 2,000 years in this life and never find contentment, and so you might as well give up. It's a bit fatalistic. But many of us don't take that approach, do we? We still pursue contentment. We still want to find it. We still want to be fulfilled. We still want to be happy. We want to find that contentment, that wholeness in our lives. And so as we begin to look at this issue of contentment, uh, there are some things that are happening in our hearts that I want to examine. I want to examine some things that are happening to us psychologically and then some things happening to us spiritually, and we'll see how those mesh together in just a minute. But there's a book uh, uh, that was written by psychologist Dr. Barry Schwartz, and in this book he talks about how uh, Our society today is bent on pursuing contentment and happiness. And in fact, we live in a society in a world today that believes that happiness is the product of freedom. Happiness is the product of freedom, and freedom is the product of choice. And so what he says in this book is that uh, we believe that in order to be happy, we have to have more freedom, and in order to have more freedom, we have to have more choice. And then he talks about how uh, the choices that we have actually destroy our ability to be happy, because we live in a society in a world today that has more choices and more freedom than any other society on the, his- on the planet in the history of the world, and yet we are not more happy. You believe that? Uh, I know this to be true. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, uh, we had uh, we got at this tiny little apartment. And uh, we bought our first television, the cheapest one they sold at Walmart, and uh, we hooked it up, and we got one TV channel, and we knew what was on TV at all times. We had one station, we knew exactly what was going to be on. And do you know what? For the first few years of our marriage, that was it was all right. It's what we had, it's what we could afford, it's what we did, and uh, we we got okay with it. A few years later, we ended up getting you know ten or twelve channels. Uh, Today I have over 300 high-definition channels. And I will flip through each one of those channels, one at a time, all the way through the full 300, 10 times around the loop, and I will turn to my wife and I will say, there is nothing to watch. (laughs) Have you been there? We have more choices, we have more freedom than than, uh, any other society in all of human history. It's true. A hundred, two hundred years ago when you were born into the world, you had very few choices, very few options of what you wanted to be and who you wanted to become. But today, you can be whoever you want to be. You can choose whatever career path you want to choose. And if you don't like your career, you can change it. And if you don't like your marriage, you can change it. And if you don't like your job, you can change it. And if you don't like your hair color, you can change it. And if you don't like your gender, you can change it. And if you don't like your face, you can change it. You can get facial reconstructive surgery, can change anything you want about your life today. We have more choices and more freedom than we've ever had in all of human history. And yet we are not more happy. And so uh, Dr. Schwartz in his books, he talks about what this freedom does to us. The, he says freedom, uh, the freedom and the amount of choices we have in our society actually does three interesting things to us. The first thing it does is it creates a sense of paralysis in our lives because we have so many choices because we have so many options it creates a sense of paralysis it creates an inability for us to actually make a choice and find contentment in the choice that we make i know this because every time my wife and i go out on a date i turn to her and i say so where would you like to go out to eat And she turns to me and says, I don't know. Where would you like to go out to eat? And we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for 20 minutes until we're like, just pick something already. We are so glad when someone blesses us with a gift card because we do not have to choose where we are going on our date. It's paralysis of choice. Uh, They did this interesting study of people who tried to find love in a speed-dating setting, and I've never been in a speed-dating setting. I've only seen them depicted on TV uh, shows uh, and movies. But uh, they found that people who tried to find love in a speed-dating session were more likely to find love if they had six potential options to choose from than if they had twelve. So the more options they had to choose from, it was less likely that they were going to find love. And you would think the opposite would be the case. You would think that more choices leads to more possibility of happiness, but actually the opposite is true. The less choices, more happiness. So uh, our freedom leads to paralysis. The second thing it leads to is uh, a sense of regret. Because, Because we have so many choices, because we have so much freedom, when we end up working up the courage to make a choice, we're always thinking about the choice we could have made. We're always thinking about what we could have had, what we could have been doing, or who we could have married, or what we could have spent our time on, or what we could have been in our lives. And this imagined alternative produces a profound sense of regret, and it destroys our ability to be happy. So it produces paralysis, it produces regret, and the third thing the amount of freedom we have does is it produces higher expectations for the choices that we make. So because I have so many choices, because I have so many opportunities, so many ways to customize my life, I have higher expectations. When I make a choice, I expect that that choice is going to bring a certain level of fulfillment in my life because I have so many options to do so. How many of you know today that the online dating industry is a $2.4 billion a year industry? Now, I, I don't want to uh, knock the online dating industry. I'm sure there are some of you, maybe even in this room, who have met uh, their partner online. Uh, and so uh, I respect that. But here's the, here's the premise behind the online dating industry. That there are millions of people out there, millions of options, millions of choices, and you can find your perfect match, that one person who is going to make you so happy and so fulfilled in your life that you will never have another problem as long as you live. It's that idea that we buy into, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a comedian, uh, his name is Aziz Ansari, he writes, he writes about this humorously in a book called Modern Romance, and uh, he talks about in this book how uh, he, he's from uh, India, and his parents had an arranged marriage. He said, uh, and his father, when it came time for his father to get married, uh, his parents gave him three choices uh, of three different women that uh, he could pursue uh, to get married. And uh, his father looked at the three women, and he said, one of them was too tall, one of them was too short, and the other one was just the right height, and so he picked her. (laughs) He said he made a 30-minute decision, and they have been married now happily for 40 years. And then uh, Aziz, the comedian, goes back and he says, and then I, I find myself back here in America sitting next to my friend who is perusing his online dating profile and he is swiping past supermodel after supermodel of women and rejecting them and saying, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. And he says to his friend, what in the world are you doing? If any one of these women met you on the street, you would be out of your mind crazy in love with them. And yet, because we have so many options, because we have so many choices, it creates a higher expectation of the choices that we have, and it ruins our ability to make a choice and find happiness in that choice. Paralysis, regret, and higher expectations. This is what's happening to us psychologically. But what's happening to us spiritually, because the truth is, in our culture today, we are meant... We are, we are given this idea that happiness is a result of freedom, and freedom is the result of choice. And so the more choices I have, the more ability I have to customize my life to an ideal setting, the more happiness, more contentment I will find. But something deeper is happening spiritually in our hearts. I believe this. I believe that discontentment is, first of all, a signal that there is a division inside my heart. Discontentment is a signal that there is a division inside of my heart. That I have not fully found who I am in Jesus Christ. That I've not fully grasped the beauty and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's a division inside of my heart. But if I go even deeper, what I find is that discontentment is uncovers a lie that I've believed. And the lie that I believe is that somehow God is not good. That somehow God is not holding out of me. So what do I mean by that? Well, discontentment is actually, it's a lie as old as the Garden of Eden. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we go back to Adam and Eve. uh, Adam and Eve had every choice you could possibly want, right? They had complete freedom. They could do whatever they wanted. And God only gave them one restriction, Do not eat from the tree in the center of the garden. And Satan, the serpent, he goes and he says to them, he creates discontentment in their hearts by saying, your choice, your freedom is being limited. And because of this limitation, it is keeping you from full happiness, from full contentment, from experiencing every part of life that you deserve. So think about this now for a second. If we believe that happiness is, is the result of freedom. And freedom is the result of the choices I have in my life. Well, then what happens when God's will for my life somehow restricts my choices? If that's my framework of thinking, then if God restricts my choices, then he's restricting my freedom. And if God is restricting my freedom, then he's restricting my happiness. And, uh, because, and by that logic... I understand that God is somehow holding out on me. That's the original lie of humanity. That God is somehow holding out on us. That God somehow, by limiting our choices, by limiting our freedom, by limiting those things, he is also limiting our contentment and our fulfillment. But that's a lie. It's a lie that we've believed. And what's amazing to me is that Satan does that. (laughs) Adam and Eve have no one else to compare their lives to, right? They have no one else to look at and say, "Uh, God, our lives are pretty good, but this other person, their life is much better. They have no one else to compare their lives to. And so what does Satan do? He compares their life to God's. He says, you have everything you could want except what God has, so you need what he has too. But we find ourselves doing the same thing. We compare our lives to others. We compare our lives to, to what our neighbor has or what our friends have or what our, our next uh, closest rich friend has. When I think about uh, people who have a lot of money, I think about uh, these, these athletes. Um, I, I mentioned to my wife recently, uh, we were talking about uh, which athletes make the most amount of money. And I said, international soccer players. And she said, absolutely not. I said, this is absolutely true. I said, uh, we looked it up online, and Cristiano Ronaldo, he plays for Real Madrid in Portugal. They just won the Euro. Some of you know this, right? He makes $80 million a year. A year. He makes more in three to five hours than most of us in this room make in an entire year. I look up to God sometimes. I'm like, God, just give me ten days as Cristiano Ronaldo, (laughs) and I'll be set for life. Life. We compare ourselves to others, and it creates a sense of discontentment. And uh, we find that even in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan compares what they have to what God has and creates this discontentment, creates this division in their hearts away from God to where they've not, to, to convince us that we cannot fully find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and that somehow, because God limits our choices and limits our freedom, that somehow he's limiting our contentment and our ability to be happy In this life But I want to ask you today Is it true That God Is limiting our contentment And limiting our happiness Or is it true That when he limits our choices He is guiding us to the place Where we have to understand That the greatest source Of fulfillment and contentment We can have in this life Does not come from anything else But from Jesus Christ himself right, All of that To get to our scripture verse Some of you thought I'd never get there Here we go Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the Philippian church. He's closing out his letter, and he says here, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty With plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many athletes have you seen that verse tattooed on their arm, right? That's usually where we we hear that verse, right? Somebody wins the championship trophy, they throw it up. Oh, how did you do it? Oh, because I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what we hear it. We usually quote that verse whenever we're facing a challenge that we want to overcome in our lives. Okay, I'm going to go take this test. All right, praise Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or I'm going for a job interview. Okay, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we actually use that verse in the opposite way of what it's intended. We actually use that verse as a blank check to do whatever we want and put Jesus' name on it. And say, as long as I can do whatever I want to do, I'll just say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we use it as a, as a justification to customize our lives in a way that we want and slap Jesus' name on it. But it's exactly the opposite of what the verse is talking about. What Paul is writing about here in Philippians chapter 4 is contentment. And what he says is very interesting. He says, I can live with absolutely everything, or I can live with absolutely nothing at all, but if I have Jesus Christ then I have everything. If I have Jesus Christ, then I have everything. If I have absolutely nothing else in my life, and if I have Jesus Christ, then I have everything. And that's why I can do all things. That's why I can go through any experience, through any trial, through any difficulty, through any situation, whether I have everything I want, whether my life is exactly the way I want it to be, or whether it's not in any way like I want it to be. If I have Jesus Christ, then I have everything. And the secret of contentment is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the source of all contentment and satisfaction in life. That's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. It's a lot harder to do. We sing that song, we're singing, Your grace is enough. Who you are is enough. For me, Jesus, you're enough. You you fully satisfy everything. But yet there are moments in our lives we find ourselves in so discontent and we lose that perspective, we lose that focus to say, Jesus Christ, you are the source of contentment in my life. Paul writes about this further in First uh, Timothy. He says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. What's he saying? He's saying the greatest contentment is not in what we have, but in who we have. Let me say that again. The greatest contentment is not in what we have, but in who we have. It's not in how many choices we have, but in the one who is the master of our choices. It's not in the ability we have to customize our lives, but in the one who gives us life. So how do, we, how do we overcome contentment? Three quick thoughts for you in closing. We have the worship team come. Three quick thoughts for you. How do we overcome discontentment? Number one, we have to acknowledge the emptiness in searching elsewhere. I and mean, some of us really have not come to that place where we've really acknowledged that truth. It's easy to say in church, it's easy to say in a song, but have we really come to that truth in our lives? Have we acknowledged that there is complete emptiness in all of our pursuits apart from Jesus Christ? It's the first place we have to get to in our lives. That's the first way we begin to confront that lie that Satan wants to use to destroy our contentment, is by acknowledging that there is complete emptiness in searching elsewhere, and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the source of all of our contentment and all of our happiness and all of our fullness and all of our wholeness in life that comes from Him. The second thing that we need to do is we need to have gratitude. Gratitude. Um, what's amazing is that uh, all of these researchers and secular psychologists have done all of this research to find all of these trends and all of these patterns to find out who are the people who have the most contentment and who are the people who are the happiest and who are the people who live the life to the fullest Who? what is the common thread that binds all of those people and do you know what they found this is really brilliant you ready they found that the people who are the happiest in their lives are the people who are the most grateful and so we have to ask ourselves am I grateful for the life God has given me grateful for the life God has given me? Am I grateful for all that God has provided in my life? Am I grateful for the way in which God limits the choices I have in my life because He's drawing me closer to Himself? And am I truly grateful for Jesus Christ? the final thing we need to do is we need to trust in the good intentions of God towards us. See, at the heart of discontentment is the lie that God limits my choices, and there, and thereby he limits my freedom, and therefore he limits my ability to be happy. But can I trust that a God who sent his only son to die on a cross... so that i could be close to him can i trust that that god has good intentions towards my life can i trust that can i believe that i want to close this morning with a with a poem uh, that is very meaningful to me personally because it it's a reminder to me of who god is and how he works in my life and um I just think it's apropos to this situation Uh, It's called The Thorn And uh, it's by Martha Snell Nicholson And it goes like this She writes I stood a mendicant or a beggar of God Before his royal throne And I asked him for one priceless gift Which I could call my own I took the gift out from his hand But as I would depart I said but Lord This is a thorn it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. But he said, my child, I give good gifts and I gave my best to thee. I took it home and though at first that cruel thorn hurt sore as long years passed I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn Without this added grace he takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Jesus Christ is the greatest gift himself. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father we thank you today for the gift of Jesus Christ We thank you, God, that you are more than enough for what we need. And God, we confess this morning that there are many moments in our lives where we find ourselves discontent, where we find our hearts divided away from you, God, where we find that we've fallen back into believing the lie that somehow you are holding out on your very best from us. But God, this morning, I pray that you would bring us back to the place in our lives and in our hearts. Where we would understand and remember that Jesus Christ is the greatest gift of all and that Jesus Christ is the source of all contentment and all satisfaction in life and if you gave us absolutely nothing else in this life other than Jesus Christ that would be enough that would be enough for us and so this morning Father we come to you and we say God work in our hearts today work in our hearts today Help us, Father, to acknowledge the emptiness in searching elsewhere. That we would come to that realization, Father, that there is absolutely nothing but emptiness in our pursuits apart from Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that you would fill our hearts with gratitude for Jesus Christ and who he is in our lives. That we'd be grateful, God, even when you limit our choices because we know that you're drawing us in a greater way to your Son. And Father, this morning I pray that you'd build in us a faith and a trust in your goodness. Father, we can trust because we know that you're a God who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, we thank you for who you are today. And we worship you for the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he is and all that he is doing in our lives. Do that in our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus name